Welcome to Tonebenders, a sound designer's podcast. Here are your hosts, Dustin, Timothy, and Renee. Welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Renee Coronado. I'm here with Timothy Muirhead and Dustin Camilleri. This is a new sound design podcast that we're starting. And for episode one here, we're going to do a little bit of some origin stories. We're going to talk a little bit about who we are, where we came from, and, and then we're going to do another segment uh, later on. Which of you guys wants to go first? Why don't, why don't we start northern and we'll, we'll head south? <laughs> we'll start north? Yeah. So that's Tim. <laughs> Tim, that's you, man. Okay. Uh, my name is Tim Muirhead, and uh, I'm a sound editor in Toronto, Canada. I mostly work on animated uh, episodic television, and uh, I've been doing this for a while. I went to uh, Sheridan College, which is a kind of a college known for its media-based uh, learnings. And then uh, from there, I did a co-op at one of the studios in Toronto, and then I got a job there, worked there for about six years, and then I went freelance, and I've been doing that for, uh, I think, 10 years now. Wow. So, uh, yeah, as I say, mostly I do animated animated series, but uh, I've also done a lot of documentaries earlier in my career and a few features as well. So, yeah. Do you go soup to nuts on the animated stuff, or is it just... Uh, well, it depends on the series. Some series I just do sound effects. Some series I just do uh, dialogue. Some series, if they're lower budget, I do everything. Depends on the budget and the crew. But uh, definitely sound effects is the one that I enjoy doing the most. Cutting dialogue for animation is all recorded in a booth, so it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Tim, why, why did you get interested in sound? Uh, that's, a, that's a good one. Uh, well, when I was a kid, I'm Canadian, so I wanted to be in the NHL. I wanted to play hockey, obviously. <laughs> uh, and then I realized that I'm very short. And uh, th- once contact came in, I could not play hockey anymore because I got killed. So then my next uh, thing was music. I was a drummer, and then I wanted to be a record producer. And then uh, I had this weird thing happen where uh, CBC is the uh, Canada's largest network and the public broadcaster. And uh, one of their reporters, his microphone and DAT recorder, fell off the back of his motorcycle in my neighborhood and I found it and uh, I took it home and I played with it and was recording stuff with the microphones and uh, had a really good time with that. And then my mom came home and told me I had to return all the gear, which I was really upset about. But uh, <laughs> that was my first time kind of getting a microphone in my hand and uh, recording stuff and just playing around and rewinding it and playing it. And uh, I kind of fell in love with it there. And then uh, I ended up going to college for it and stuff. So that was kind of a weird circumstances that first got me into it. Do you get out to record hockey much? You know, uh, I started playing goalie a couple of years ago. I've always been a skater and uh, I put a portable recorder behind the net, uh, like uh, behind where I, cause I save all the pucks, like no puck would get into the net. So the portable recorder would be perfectly safe, but uh, it didn't record <laughs> very well. It never got hit. Thank God. But uh, I, I do, did uh, go early one time and uh, record a couple pucks hitting posts and stuff like that, which was fun. You know, I found that some of my best hockey stuff has come at minor league games because you got full-size dudes out there and they're going full speed, but there's nobody in the stands and you have full access to the whole place. And yeah, I've gotten sure. some of my best just checks and, and glass hits off of minor league stuff, like lower level minor league stuff, you know, like barely professional hockey. <laughs> oh, I know all about that level of hockey. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. So what, what, are you, what are you up to next? Where are you headed with your career or what do you want to do? Do you want to keep doing what you're doing now or are you looking to do something different? Uh, ideally, I'd like to get into uh, animated features. I've done a couple animated features, uh, quite low budget ones, but uh, that's the goal to get into animated features for sure. Take the next step. What do you like about animation in particular versus uh, live action? Animation, I find, is really fun because... A lot of the time, there's no prescribed what something should sound like. In uh, you know, a gun has got to sound like a gun when Christian Slater raises it and shoots it at somebody. But in a cartoon, you can you know, they're half the time they're in space and stuff like that. I guess sci-fi films is the same thing, but you have a lot more freedom with the sound effect design in animation because uh, it's obviously a completely made-up world. Drawings. Do you do any mixing? I haven't been doing that recently, but I did before. Man, I find mixing for animation to be the trickiest thing, just because it it's very so tricky. Yeah. open and out there. Yeah, especially the dialogue to try and get uh, everybody to sound like where they are. Yeah, everything's just dry. Yeah, and as you said, Tim, since nothing really exists, the level of detail 
Yeah, you can get uh, deep. That's necessary to, to really create that world is, is uh, can get pretty intense. Yeah, it's fun. Like I, when, when, the cool thing about doing sound effects animation for cartoons is people think it's way more glamorous than it actually is. So when I'm at like a cocktail party or something and they're like, oh, what do you do? Uh, I do sound effects for animation. Oh, that's amazing. And they only think of like the amazing uh, big explosion and spaceship battles or whatever. And then, you know, I explain, well, I also have to cut every footstep that they take and, you know, every little hand and cloth movement. And they're like, oh, that doesn't sound nearly as interesting. But as you say, it's in the details. You got to get deep because nothing exists. You got to build everything from scratch. So it can be really fun. Yeah. I, I also adore animation. That's my favorite medium to work on as well for the exact reasons that you stated. Yep. I have one client that does a bunch of short animation stuff. And it's one of my favorite things that I get to work on because it's just total creation from scratch. And, and I get a lot of creative freedom with a specific project. So yeah, you know, I get to do all kinds of fun stuff. It's, it's really exciting when you get a new episode or a new series. And like the only thing that's there is the voice because the music obviously is being done at the same time normally. And you just got to create everything. And it's just an empty uh, canvas for you to build on, which is uh, yep. exciting. And there's yep. no uh, airplane passes halfway through a dialogue edit that suddenly disappear. <laughs> which can you know what I found though is sometimes your animators will hose you though because they'll animate reactions that you may not have necessarily recorded from the actors. Oh yeah, that happens a lot. You got to get a big uh, dialogue library going. I found that I really have to be proactive in watching the script because sometimes my directors will well they'll write a laugh into the stage direction, but they won't write it into the script. And I'll say, hey, look, I need to get I need to get him laughing. Yeah. For sure. I like to make a, a list before the, the first episode records of just like I have a document that's just a, a bazillion uh, reactions and single word replies and stuff that I just get all the actors to just go through. So you have a consistent library. So when they do go, oh, why isn't that guy laughing? You can at least go and find something. Yeah, I've definitely been bitten by that. The casting directors and the voice directors, they hate that list, though, because that just means the more time they got to do. Because <laughs> the first episode's always chaos anyways. Everyone's finding the voices of the characters that they did like three months ago in an audition and stuff like that. Right. Tim, do you still write any music? Uh, I play drums in a band, but uh, the guitarist and bass player write the music. I just make it rock. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah, they like to write music in extremely bizarre time signatures that make the drumming very difficult. And uh, that's how I have fun, just figuring out how to make a... Uh, 13 11 time signature work rhythmically how very radiohead of you <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> so uh going south i guess uh, we're up to dustin next what's what's cool. your origin story there yeah i guess that'd be me so uh my name is dustin camilleri and i'm a sound designer re-recording mixer sometimes composer and post-production supervisor currently located in chicago i got my start in a very roundabout way, I suppose. Um, my background in college started in math, computer science, and I eventually found my way into some audio work through electronic music, specifically in the DJ scene at the time. I started DJing and found myself really into the production side of things. It was interesting to me the way that they were making sounds that weren't necessarily guitars, drums, bass, and vocals. It, it seemed interesting, and I had never heard a lot of those types of noises before, and I, I was interested where they came from. But uh, I didn't do too much digging. Um, I would do DJ mixes and kind of record them into a DAT deck and then put that into SoundForge and maybe do a little normalization, but I didn't understand how to edit anything at that time, so I would have to record you know, 60-minute mixes in one pass because if I screwed up any part of it, I would have to start over. So that was my first foray, I guess, into computer audio and producing somewhat of my own content. And after the math computer science thing, I did a bunch of other stuff in college and ended up with a communications degree, completely unrelated. And when I finally graduated, I realized I didn't want to do either of those two things, either math, <laughs> CS, or uh, communications, even though I had good opportunities in both, neither of them were really my thing. So I said, well, what's the only thing that I, I guess I'm kind of into and I've always been into, and it was music and sound in some way. And I was young, and I figured if you're going to make a mistake, well, why not do it now? So 
I went back to school for audio and graduated there and did the, the kind of cliche and, and moved out to Los Angeles with uh, nothing, no real friends, no contacts, no job, no money, and sat in my room for about three months and sent resumes to everyone and everyone I could find multiples a day and eventually found a hit at a radio syndication company and they would put together top 40 packages for countries that didn't have access to that type of music. So they would bring in the DJs and they would write the scripts and they would uh, record the whole show and burn it to a CD and mail it out. And so then these remote countries could pop that into their CD player, press play, and they had a professionally produced radio show. And the advertisement for that job in the very, very, very fine print said, uh, Pro Tools Experience a plus. And we would go out and record interviews with these artists and you'd have to take those interviews back and cut them up and, and make them ready for air. Now, I probably used Pro Tools maybe three times in my entire three-month stint at that place, but as is the nature in Los Angeles, my boss was a freelance composer and at the end of my internship, he said to me, thanks for all your hard work. We'd love to keep you here, but I know this isn't really what you want to do. I have some friends who own a studio. They're looking for some help. And I, uh, I interviewed at a couple of the places that he pointed me to and eventually fell into one of them, a place called uh, Machine Head, which is a boutique sound design and music shop in, at the time, Venice. They're now in Santa Monica. And again, as the way LA works, I started there as a receptionist because you quickly learn that no one's going to let you do anything else there unless you can figure out how to make coffee. So I made the best damn coffee in Los Angeles for about a couple months. And eventually we got a big movie in and they needed some help and they let me start doing some actual work. So I would help composers there print and assist on some uh, music stem sessions and prepare stuff for the dub stages and, and that kind of thing. And uh, as I kind of went through things, I, I um, eventually worked my way up to getting to do some actual creative work there and sound design I really took to that side of things. Just uh, as Tim said, for animation, creating a world from scratch is, is really interesting to me, creating a whole environment. And especially those, those types of scenarios where those environments don't necessarily have any prescribed notion of what it sounds like. I found myself drawn to that. And thankfully, my boss thought I was fairly decent at it. So I did that for about five years and eventually left Machine Head took a job here in Chicago at a video game company called High Voltage Software as an in-house audio designer. And I would do everything from editing music to creating sound effects to recording voiceover and, of course, the implementation as well. I was there for just under a year. And then I left there. And since then, I've been running my own business, actually, kind of as a freelancer contract type person doing mostly long format, so a lot of film work and some video game stuff also, mostly as a sound designer. And lately, actually in the last two years, a lot of mixing. So that's where the re-recording mix would come, in, come into play. And then last year, a large advertising agency here in Chicago tapped me to run their in-house production and post-production facility. So that's a full-featured, cross-discipline, editorial, animation, sound design, music mix, and everything in between. And so I've been doing that for about a year, and we're just getting ready to build the new facility, which is pretty exciting. So I keep busy. I keep busy on both fronts. Did you create your position over there, or did, that, uh, did you step in when someone else stepped out? That position didn't really exist. It was kind of filled as more of just a producer role. But um, they needed someone to, to kind of push it forward. And so that was when they brought me in. So, so my actual title, uh, I created at that space, at least. So it's kind of a new thing for them, the type of thing that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Now, the advertising agency is a, is a huge organization, and they have a model of this business that works at their headquarters. So there is someone like me there. So it wasn't exactly... A, you know, breaking new ground for the organization as a whole, but certainly in Chicago, it was something new for them. You said you went to school. Where'd you go to school at for audio? Uh, I, so my, my undergrad degree was at the uh, University of Illinois in Champaign, 
And then after I finished there with a communications degree, I went to Full Sail, actually, in uh, Florida. There you go. Yep. So are you from Chicago? Is that why you moved from L.A. to Chicago? Uh, no, I'm from Boston. Well, just outside of, course. of Boston, actually. Yeah. So <laughs> Boston to Champaign to Orlando to Los Angeles to Chicago. Right on. It's a pretty straight path. I like your story about uh, making coffee that reminded me the first day that I did my internship, they were like, go make coffee. And I don't drink coffee. And I made the worst <laughs> coffee that has ever been made in history. And they seriously considered just like having me leave. That almost destroyed my entire career. The fact that I didn't know how to make coffee. That's why. It's, it's a big deal. I mean, it is. You, you come to quickly realize that no one's going to let you sit at a million dollar console if you can't figure out how to make a client happy in the most basic sense, you know, and, and I don't drink coffee either, but I understood what they were doing and it was, it's a little test for you. Yeah. You know, do exactly. you take this seriously? Cause if you don't take that seriously, then how are you going to take a session seriously when it's five o'clock in the morning and you've got to ship something the next day? Yep. Well, luckily they gave me a second chance. I now can make a mean cup of coffee. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Me <laughs> See, too. I, I still can't make learning. coffee. I suck. <laughs> But ironically, I do kind of judge our interns. I'm like, hey, man, how was your coffee? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just an attitude thing. I think the, the thing of it is, is, you know, are you willing to do the things that you don't necessarily want to do uh, with the same amount of passion as the stuff that you're way into? And if you are, then you're probably someone that you want to keep around that place. I say that to my interns and the kind of students that I work with and other young people that I'm around. You know, no matter what you're doing, always do it to the best possible way you can do it. It, yep. doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're making coffee. If you're, I mean, I cleaned the bathrooms there as well, but those bathrooms were spotless. I made sure of that because I wanted, you know, that, that's part of my reputation. You're only as good as the last thing you did. Yep, absolutely. It doesn't matter if that's the cup of coffee you made or if that's the feature film you just mixed. For sure. Cool. <clears throat> and you got a communications degree. What the heck do you learn when you're doing communications? Uh, it's it's a bit of a, a misnamed degree. It's it's more of a business degree actually. So it's it's macro and micro communications. So communications within businesses, how departments and employees and employers talk to each other, and then how businesses talk to each other, how the flow of communication moves within an organization, and how communication moves from organization to organization. So th- it was interesting. I, I both of my parents run their own business. I now run my own business. My sister's starting her own business, so I kind of come from a long line of entrepreneurs, so it made sense to me, and I, I enjoyed it. But it certainly was completely unrelated to anything that I had even been remotely interested in the rest of my life. So you don't use it in your audio career? Well, absolutely. use it every day. I mean, audio really, at the end of the day, is a customer service job. You know, you, you have to yeah. make people happy. And I've worked with a lot of people who are incredibly technically gifted, but they can't run a session with clients. Um, and that, that makes them almost useless. You know, they might be good as a kind of a remote contractor, but you can't bring them in to run a session, a high-pressure session with clients who are paying a ridiculous amount of money per hour. You, you've got to know how to communicate with people and how to make them happy and how to read them. And that's really important. It's an understated skill, I think. But it's, at least for me, as someone who's now in a position where I, where I hire people and I kind of vet people for our place, communication is one of the first things I look at, you know? Yeah, for uh, sure. How do, how do you talk to me and, and how do you talk to the rest of the staff and how do you talk to people who, who are looking to you? Because they, you know, clients come in and they're, they're pretty stressed out. Everything about their project, especially as audio, as the last step, everything about their project is in your hands. And they may have spent many, many millions of dollars up until this point, and they need to make sure that it's great. And they need to make sure that it's great in two hours. So if you can't talk to them and, and kind of put them at ease, that's a tough spot. So I use it every day. I mean, I don't necessarily use it probably the way that my professors taught me to use it, but I think it's been a valuable skill for me, certainly. Yep, for sure. And you know, the other thing with audio is that a lot of people just don't have the language, you know. A lot of people communicate with words very poorly when they're Absolutely. talking about audio. And it's Absolutely. such an emotional medium, you know. They get emotionally upset. Yeah, being able to interpret that and, and figure out what they're saying and then 
turn that into something that that is meaningful in the audio world. Um, yeah, that's exactly. a, that's an excellent point. Yeah, I've never had a session where that I haven't used that skill. I'm sure that we can all say that. You know. Yep. Yeah, taking what the client says, which doesn't actually make sense, but knowing <laughs> what they mean is is a real skill because it's so difficult to speak in audio terms, and uh, it's definitely a skill. I, I often say that, uh, like an intern, you're the biggest thing that you have to do to show that you deserve to get hired is get along with the clients. Yep. Like because. If you can do the amazing Pro Tool wizardry in the background, that's fine. But if the client hates you, they're never going to let you work with them again. So, yep, you know, you got to, it's, it's as much kissing their butt as just uh, knowing how to interact with people. It is, for sure. And, and the reality of, of the kind of audio world we live in now, everybody understands Pro Tools. You know, I mean, yeah. Pro Tools is not a, a skill that sets you apart anymore. Nope. So, again, as, as someone who's hiring, I look for the, the things outside of sound that make you special and, and communication is a big one. Do you have the type of personality that keeps people happy? Like you said, that keeps clients wanting to come back and work with you. I can't even think of any time a client has said to me, I want to work with that guy because his Pro Tool skills were so amazing. You know, it's, it's always like, <laughs> I want to work with that guy because he's funny or I want to work with that guy because he's super nice or I want to work with that guy because I had a great conversation with him or her. It's, it's very rarely about the technical side of things. We love that. Although in a lot of cases it is, I want to work with that guy because it always sounds good and it always works and it's always on time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's true. But half the time, I don't mean to uh, imply that clients are not very bright, but uh, <laughs> half the time a client will be more impressed with a mix if it went smoothly. Like they'll be yep. happier with the final sound because the mix went smoothly as opposed to sure, how good yeah. it actually sounds. That's true. Yeah. Agreed. Like it, there's a range. It obviously has to sound to a certain level of good, but uh, how easy the session went definitely influences yeah. their perception of how good the final audio is. That's in a, a very, a very interesting way. point. That's a very interesting point, actually, and in, in how having that personality can manipulate a session that could easily have gone off the rails. And I'm sure we've all had those, but having that personality that can keep it on track and keep them happy. Is, exactly. It's huge, you know? Yeah. I'd also say that speaks to, you know, preparation and professionalism too. I mean, the more professional and the more prepared you are, the more likely you are to have a good session with the clients in the room. If you've done your homework on the front end and you've done all your prep and all your setup and everything works and there's not cables with weird solder joints or whatever happening, you know, those things all cumulatively add up to what could be, you know, the right experience for the client. For sure. Even down yep. to what was ordered for lunch. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Client services, big deal. And that's again, that's why I I really think that at the end of the day, we're we're customer service people, you know. Yep. And I, I really believe that most of us are trained to the point where most of our mixes sound pretty good. You know, obviously, some are better than others, but I think, especially in, you know, I do a lot of commercial work, obviously working at an advertising agency, and it's not rocket science. You know, most of the time you're getting three stems and you're turning the faders up and doing a little duck. Anybody can do that, but what makes you different is the, the service side of things, and, and it's really a, a relationship business, um, especially when you're talking about return clients. I think the relationships trump the work a lot of times. So again, that, that communications background in some way, if it's taught like it was for me or if it's just learned over the course of time, I think that's a huge part of what we do. For sure. And even as a field recordist, uh, Tim, I know you do a lot of field recording, and, and Renee, you as well. You probably get this. I mean, trying to weasel your way into a spot where you're not necessarily uh, wanted with a big recording rig, you know, learning how to talk to those people and convince them that you're not a crazy person, that, that that's also a communications thing. Definitely. So for me, it's, you know, it's kind of a balls thing. You know, you'll, you'll set a mic up and then um, and set up and roll until someone comes and tells you to leave. Yeah. For sure. I, but it's also when they do tell you to leave, if you if you don't get all aggressive and in their face, sometimes you can talk them into letting you stay. I had an experience once. I recorded the implosion of Texas Stadium. So Texas Stadium was set to be imploded at 7.30 a.m. one morning in October, I guess about two years ago, two, three years ago, maybe three years ago. Um, and so I got there with all of my mics all set up, ready to go at like 6, and it's pitch black, dark outside. 
And I kind of got a little too close and I was on the, I was in the blast zone, but like on the outside edge of being in the blast zone. And I was set up and I was, I was ready to go and I, was, I had everything all set and rolling. And, you know, the, the hard thing about recording big public events like that is staying away from the crowds. And so I found a nice spot that was away from all the people because they had like designated places for all the people to go. And that's not how I wanted to record this thing. So I just kind of dove into the bushes with all my gear and popped out on the other side and set it all up. Well, as the sun rose, all of a sudden I became visible and a cop kind of came up to me and shooed me away. And when that happened, I had to kind of nod and smile and pick everything up and go find a place with an obstructed view so that no one could see it. So I could set my mics up over on top of a wall and catch it that way. And um, that still ended up working. I, I managed to both not get arrested and still get a recording. Not getting arrested is always a good thing. Right. <laughs> yes. Pro, pro tip number one, don't get arrested. <laughs> well, Renee, with that story, why don't we uh, jump into your origin story now? So my name is Renee Coronado. I'm based out of Dallas, Texas. I was raised in West Texas. And, um, you know, I was the typical long-haired guy in a metal band that was trying to make his shit sound cooler than the other guys in the band. And... Um, at some point in high school, I decided that I really wanted to do audio. I was very fortunate in that I, oh, I figured out, I guess, early on how much I really enjoy this and, and, and was able to set myself on that path as a, at a really young age. And so as I'm coming out of high school, I'm looking around at all the colleges. And, you know, at that time, which was 99, a lot of the colleges, their audio programs were not really audio programs. They were music programs. And as yeah. a guitarist in a metal band, I had no idea how to read or play music. So what I ended up doing was I found a little community college very close to where I lived, and I ended up getting a free ride because I had good grades in high school. And I got my two-year associate's degree at South Plains College out in West Texas. And South Plains College has this amazing bluegrass program. And... To this day, one of the best recordings I've ever made in my life was of a bluegrass band while I was in school, and literally all I had to do was just push the faders up, and it sounded amazing, and that's, that was all I had to do, because they sounded so kick-ass. It was just, set the mics up and don't screw something up. But what I found was that I, I got a way better education with regards to audio and the fundamentals at that school and at that time that I'm seeing a lot of kids now getting because I was, because I taught us, you know, microphone theory and acoustics and electricity and troubleshooting and, you know, all the fundamentals that you should learn in school. And so it was just a really great, great education. And it was, you know, it was two years. And it was, so it wasn't like a four-year degree, but at the same time, it wasn't like a, a 10, 10 week degree or whatever, you know, that guys are doing now. And then I came out of school and immediately came to work where I work now, which is at Dallas Audio Post. And that was just serendipity, dumb luck. And also me being ready, willing, and able to move to Dallas and take the job. It was an entry-level position, and I spent five years learning how to do what I do after having spent the two years in college, you know, just becoming proficient. I feel like it took me five years before I was really worth the money that they were charging the clients to sit behind me. It was important for me to kind of go through that whole experience and have it take that, that amount of time. And, you know, one of the first things I did there was build my room. And I had never worked on Pro Tools. Like, I had never touched Pro Tools prior to being hired at Dallas Audio Post. When I was in school, we were working on two-inch tape. Um, and so I had spent all this time and energy learning how to bias and calibrate a tape machine. And uh, I've never done that since. Which no one knows how to do anymore. <laughs> well... I've never done it since. It's like I still, I couldn't do it now. Well, I think that there's a value in knowing how to do that because everything we do now comes from that. And it's interesting yeah. to me that they don't 
kids these days, you know, as an kids older guy, yeah, exactly to say that <laughs> phrase, uh, they don't they don't know that stuff. They really don't. They've they've never seen two inch tape. Exactly. Well, you know, and the irony is, all right, so at this point in my career, I'm on the curriculum board at South Plains College at the school that I graduated. And um, it's, a, it's a huge challenge because kids come in and they're learning on different tools mm-hmm. than, than what I learned on. And they have different expectations of what they want out of that program than what I had. And a lot of the people that taught me at that school are still there. And it's always the biggest debate is what's the best purpose? What's the best way to serve these kids and to teach them what they need to know? What do they need to know now versus what I needed to know then? Sure. Um, and it shifts and it changes over time. And it's, and, but, you know, I still preach the fundamentals. I say, hey, you need to know how a microphone works, like physically, so that you can troubleshoot it and fix it. And you need to know how acoustics work and you need to know how electricity works. But then I add to that, I say, hey, you need to know file management. If you don't know file management, you're in real trouble, you know? And that was something that I didn't learn at that time you know, that I had to learn, you know, as my career went on. I work in a collaborative environment. I don't work solo. So I work with a team of other engineers and we're always opening each other's work up and tweaking and moving. And sometimes, you know, one of my coworkers will do a session and I'll I'll open it up later in the day and do a pickup or, you know, do a tweak or do a revision. And so when you're working in a collaborative environment, your file maintenance and your file naming systems tend to, uh, tend to get a lot better, a lot quicker. Um, and the other thing that I'm kind of in charge of here now is all the databasing. Uh, so all of our sound effects and music all gets databased through me. Nothing hits our library before it goes through me. And the other thing is all of our backups. So every day I'm the one that's in charge of making sure that all the automated backups are in place and the one manual backup that I run is in place and that all the backups are working fine. And so when, you're, when you have that perspective, when you're in a collaborative environment and you're the one that's in charge of the libraries, and you're the one that's in charge of the, uh, of the backups and the retrievals, you start to get pretty hardcore about your file maintenance and about your file naming schemes. And so I feel like that's something that, that I learned on the job that was, that was very, very important that, that didn't come from school. And, you know, I, I work in a very, like I said, I spent my first five years just kind of figuring out what the hell I was doing. And then I spent the five years after that, figuring out amongst what I'm doing, what am I good at? And I kind of developed my niches within the team of people that I work with as the field recordist and as the lead sound designer and as an ADR cutter. I love cutting ADR. And so, you know, those are kind of the three things that, that I really specialize in amongst doing the other kind of basic fundamental stuff you have to do, you know, mixing spots and editing music and doing all of that. Um, so it took me five years to figure out what I was doing, five years to determine my specialties. And now I'm in the process in my career where I'm refining my specialties and trying to become very, very good at the things that, that I specialize in in the context of my team. And so now's the point of my career when I'm trying real hard to push myself with regards to my field recording and push myself with regards to my sound design where I still have holes. You know, my biggest holes as a sound designer are in the synthesis realm for sure. And to get myself as far down those roads as I can get to where I can really contribute to the team. Because the thing is, when I came out of school and I came to work where I work, I thought I was a musician because I played guitar in a band for many years. And I didn't realize that I wasn't a musician until I started hanging out with people that were very high-level musicians that were doing things that I couldn't wrap my brain around on the guitar. And, you know, with guitar, you know, there's always going to be someone that's going to shred you on a guitar. It doesn't matter. You'll never be the best guitar player in the world. But the people that, that work here are such talented and, like, highly educated musicians that, that it became apparent to me that I needed to find my specialties in other realms because I was never going to specialize in those things in a way that was going to um, be beneficial to what the team was as a whole. You know, that's, that's kind of where we're at. And, you know, I'm very fortunate. We get to do a broad, broad level, you know, of stuff. Our clients are very, very diverse. We do, we do animation. We do films. We do field recording. Um, we do a lot of political work. I do a lot of stuff for the, the sports teams in town. And so, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. And I'm in Dallas, and I'm living the dream. Awesome. It's interesting that you've been at one facility for this kind of the, the duration of your professional side of things. That's, I find that to be pretty rare especially these days where people move around so often how do you how can you speak to that 
type of longevity? Well, you know, I, I owe a lot to the organization. You know, there are a lot of organizations that are set up to, to kind of churn through people. And this place is not. We're very, very unique. We're set up like a law firm. So you put a certain amount of tenure in and you become a partner. And I became a partner here last year. Um, Congratulations. Yeah, it was a big day. And it was, um, it's, it's something that I would not have the opportunity to do in almost any other audio setting. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I am very cognizant of that. You know, to some degree, again, it's dumb luck that I found my way into an organization that was structured like that at the age that I did, because I was 21 when I got hired here. Sure. I was thinking about that the other day, the, uh, the way that this industry has worked and for me and then, you know, getting ready for this show. There's an interesting mix of an intense amount of work and then just absolute luck. Yeah. That happened for me as well, you know, just the fact that my boss knew somebody and that person happened to hire me. That's luck, really. But you put in the work, obviously, ahead of it. Exactly. Do you find that that's still true, that that a lot of your daily existence is a lot of hard work and then a little bit of luck? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, you know, you say luck in that the opportunity was presented to me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the important thing on the back end is my responsibility is to, uh, to capitalize on that opportunity. So when a door opens, you have to walk through it and you have to manage to not get yourself pushed out later. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I do take a lot of personal responsibility for how I do the job that I do. And I do have to take a lot of personal responsibility for the quality of my work and for the quality of my preparation and for the way that I handle clients and the way that I handle billing and, and the, whole, the whole vibe. A lot of that is my own personal responsibility. That's something that I have to take responsibility for. And so consequently, those are things that I have to work at and put effort into. And so, yeah, it's just kind of a manner of evaluating the parts of what you do that are important and really focusing on those and, and yeah, working at them every day. Because if, if you sit and just say, you know what, I'm pretty good at this, and then just roll with it, you're going to get past some kid in his house with Ableton is just going to smoke you. Yeah, absolutely. If you just sit there and think that, that, you're, that you're the shit, because it's really hard to stay good. For sure. My big luck break was uh, when I was finished college, the last semester of college was uh, an internship and getting a studio to take you on was the biggest challenge of the internship. And I just got lucky that when I sent in my resume by fax, remember those? (laughs) I love the fax machine. The owner of the studio was leaning against the counter that the fax machine was on talking to the lead engineer about how they should get an intern as my fax was rolling in. So they phoned me literally like a minute and a half after I hit send on the fax. Wow. And then I ended up getting an internship at that studio. They ended up hiring me. I worked there for five or six years. And almost every client and connection that I have now, uh, 10 years into freelancing, can be traced back to someone that I worked with when I was first at that studio who then went to somewhere else and they kept in touch with me. And like almost my whole business now is based around that fax coming in at that exact right moment when they were talking around it. Yeah, that's cool. Now, as you say, I had to take advantage of that. I had to show up and do well at the internship so that they hired me. And then I worked the night shift for a couple of years. And then, you know, I got into uh, working with clients and I started mixing and, uh, and then when I went freelance, I basically went freelance because I wanted to do sound editing more than mixing. They were pushing me more in a mixing route. But uh, when I went freelance, I became that company's main uh, sound mixer, sorry, sound editor when they uh, needed somebody. But yeah, it all traces back to that one faded moment when my fax came in at the exact right time. See, I can't wrap my head around the whole freelance mentality because I've been at this company for 12 years and it's like it would terrify me. <laughs> to be out there trying to find a gig every day, you know? Uh, we, you get over that, but it's certainly in the back of your head all the time. I think it's a mix of, I've been on both sides now. I've been at a at a facility, that, and Tim, you could probably say the same thing, but uh, there's a certain something to having that security of knowing you're going to that place every day and you're going to get a paycheck from that place every two weeks or whatever it is. But there's also an incredible thrill from being your own boss and doing what you want to do and taking on the projects you want to take on and saying no to the projects you don't and sleeping in if you feel like that day or being kind of the master of your own destiny in a way. So it's a, it's a you know, six of one, half dozen of the other. 
kind of thing. I think there's pros and cons to both sides of it, and both are both are very, very interesting and thrilling and exciting in their own right. For sure. But you're kind of doing both at the same time, aren't you? Yeah, actually, right now, because I'm a crazy person, so, so I, <laughs> I decided to run two businesses at once. <laughs> and a podcast. And a, and a podcast and, <laughs> and a blog yeah, and a blog and, and hundreds yeah. of other things. Yeah. I also do web design work if anybody needs a website, but, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you, you know, know that's, that's how it is though. You have to, you have to love it. You have to be driven, you know, and it has to not be a chore. You know, if it's work, it's not, it's not worth it. I was going to say, I, I made a very, that's why when I, when I finished my undergrad degree at, at uh, Illinois, I decided to change routes because I had two great job offers. I mean, really great job offers straight out of school. And I realized that those things for me were a chore. And I didn't want to get up in the morning and think to myself, I don't really want to go to work today. You know, and I never wanted that feeling. And uh, luckily enough, I found something that, uh, that I love. I really, really love. And, and it's almost, it's the type of thing now where I can't stop thinking about it you know, what I do. And I, I just love this work so much that it, it's, it's almost beyond a passion. I think it's, it's, it's an obsession for me. And yep. I do it not because I make money at it or because it's my job. I do it because somewhere deep inside of me, I feel like I have to do it. Like I'm compelled to do it. It's not a conscious thought anymore. It's just, I'm drawn to it. Find the thing you love and then find a way to make money at it. Totally. Exactly. Totally. Renee, the other thing that was kind of cool about what you said was the um you took five years to figure out what you were doing and then the next five years at figuring out your niche and now you're into the refining of those those yeah, skills for sure i think that's a really interesting take on kind of a career trajectory and i think and, and tim i don't know about you but i'm i'm probably in that same boat certainly when i started i had no idea what i was doing you know when my boss first asked me to do sound design i was like of course, I said yes with a big smile on my face. And as soon as he left the room, I said, oh, shit. Um, <laughs> okay, now watch the language, okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I don't, I don't know how to do sound design. I mean, I know what that is, and I know the basics of it, but I didn't know how to set up my session, and I didn't understand any of the, the real professional fundamentals of it. So it took a while to get that down. And then once I got that down, then I, I spent some time figuring out, okay, what part of this industry do I really like? And I found that I really like sound design, particularly really synthesis-based stuff and coming from the math computer science thing, which I do love, the kind of more technical side of sound design I really enjoy. And then in the last few years, I've found that I really enjoy re-recording mixing for feature length. Uh, long format. And mm -hmm. so now I'm at a point where I'm, I'm going down those two paths and trying to be, as you said, Renee, the best at those two things that I can be. And you had some guidance when you were at, uh, when you were at Machine Head, didn't you? You had people, I mean, that was a sound design shop, right? It was a sound design shop. Yeah. It was a sound design and, and original music shop. So there were people who did just sound design and people who did just composition and then some people that did both. But I was, I was lucky that the Machine Head is a very interesting place. Some some truly amazing people have gone through there, and it seems like you're only ever six degrees away from someone who worked there. Right. And there there were some great. When I was there, there were some great mentors for me. So they kind of showed me the ropes. And in particular, the two people that were there, the the owner Stephen Dewey, he is, in my opinion, one of the best pure sound designers that I've ever encountered. What comes out of his brain and what he can put into a, into a sonic form is just amazing to me. And he taught me a lot about how to capture an emotion with the sound or how to tell a story with some crazy piece of audio. And that was incredibly eye-opening for me. And the other gentleman, Tobias Enhaus, who is a brilliant composer and sound designer in his own right, but comes from a very different approach. And he is very technical and kind of math oriented and that was great for me because he's actually the one who got me into Kima and I've been a Kima user now for for six or seven years and it's my my favorite thing that I own and he taught me a lot about how to create sounds from scratch using that kind of more mathematical synthesized approach 
And so having those two things obviously helped shape a lot of what I do now and how I do it. See, and that's, that's a very different perspective from mine because with regards to sound design to a large degree, especially early on, I was really having to wing it and I'm in a bit of a vacuum here in Texas. There are a lot of good sound designers in Texas, but I didn't really know them or interact with them on that type of creative level as I was trying to figure out how to do the things that I do well. So to a large degree, you know, with the recent coming of the Twitter community and the blogosphere and all of that, it's been a very recent development in my career with regards to being able to share ideas and have people check stuff out or, you know, see ideas that other people have. You know, I had a lot of tutelage and I had a lot of coming up with regards to, and a lot of mentorship with regards to the other elements of my job, but not specifically to the sound design side of it. And so to some degree, that's what I'm hoping to get out of this podcast as well, is really just sharing ideas and trying stuff and being wrong and being called out for being wrong and learning that way. As a freelancer, just as you mentioned, the social media aspect of Twitter and blogs and such, because I used to be like you, Renee, where I was in a studio with many other engineers and uh, you would collaborate and learn from each other. Oh, I figured out how to do this. And, oh, you know, you can do this this way. And, and you'd build systems and protocols yeah. and uh, all learn together. And then since I went freelance for the first couple of years, suddenly I was in this like vacuum where I knew what I knew, but I wasn't being able to interact with people in the same way because I was my own shop for the most part. But now with Twitter and blogs, you can learn so much and be interactive without actually being in the same room as people the way it was like in 1998 when I first got my first job, like none of that remotely existed. You wanted to learn something new, you got out the manual. Yeah. And, uh, so it's, it's really the social media thing. Like everyone's got to get on it and just have it expand because the, the collaborative learning just, it, it's exponential. And what I found with the blogging too, is interesting because you never know who's looking at your blog and who's reading your blog. You know, I have clients every so often that'll show up and say, it'd be like, Hey, I saw that thing that you put on your blog. And I'd be like, I had no idea you, you were looking at my blog, <laughs> you know? And you'll get comments from people that you don't know on Twitter and that you don't know anywhere else on the internet. There's these other random strangers that are watching your blog that are sometimes calling you out for being wrong. And that's how you, that's how you learn is you, you put yourself out there because the internet's real good at telling you, at pointing out to you when something you said isn't exactly correct. <laughs> yes, in the <laughs> nicest way possible, always. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the sound community is, you know, a, a really good community, though. Um, people don't tend to be assholes. Well, it's it's worth saying at this point that none of us have met each other. And Correct. this podcast exists because of that exact community. And I think that's kind of an amazing thing. Yeah, for sure. So let's move on to the Kima thing, because I know zero about Kima, and I'm very interested Yay. to uh, to hear what uh, what went on at this conference you, went, you just went to. You're talking to Dustin here. I'm not Dustin. Dustin, go. Dustin, go. <laughs> Kima. Hi. Uh, yeah, so I, I guess... You know, a quick background for those that don't know what it is. Kima is a sound design environment. It's similar to something like maybe Max MSP or Pure Data or one of those types of environments. It's modular, it's patch-based, so you connect an input to an output and another output to an input, et cetera, and so on and so forth. But all in software. All, all in software. However, there's a hardware component, which makes it a little bit unique. So none of the computation is actually done on your uh, native CPU. It's all done on a specialized piece of hardware, which is a little bit different to the way, obviously, Max MSP and, and those pure data type applications work where they're just a native uh, software-only application. The nice thing about Kima is that it's, it's completely open-ended. So there are pre-built modules to do all kinds of different things from very simple things like, like reverb and some oscillators to create some sounds to wide-ranging amount of things and you can build modules if they don't exist and you can connect anything to anything else you might not get great results but the option to do it is there so you can also kind of go as shallow or deep as you want which i love so you can use it for something very simple i used it the other day i just needed to create a sequence a nice kind of arpeggiated sequence using just a sine wave through a reverb and uh, i built it in Kima. if any of you follow Jed Sound on Twitter. He mm -hmm. made a Kima patch to make whooshes. 
and it's incredibly complex. It's amazing, and the flexibility of that system is kind of through the roof. So this is kind of a, a whole system based around creating sound, and we're using sound design in the very broad sense with Kima. It's anything, you know, anything that makes a noise. So this device has been around for quite some time. It was developed by two people, Carla Scaletti and Kurt Hebel. Began, it began as their research project when they were in college at the University of Illinois. And uh, after a bit of time, it became a commercial product and has been ever since through their company, Symbolic Sound. Because it's, it's kind of a very niche piece of gear, the kind of buy-in is such that it's not, you know, available at your local guitar center type of thing. Uh, like how big is the Kima community compared to, say, like Reactor? Well, uh, much smaller, fractions fractions of, of reactor or max. Uh, you can just take a look at the forum activities and see that it's it's quite a bit different. I actually was remarking at the forum that enrollment was about maybe 70 people or so for Kima. If you did that type of thing for max MSP, you'd have thousands and thousands and thousands of people who would sign up. Is the reason that it's a smaller community, I don't know the exact numbers, but from what I understand, it's it's a bit of a price point to get your foot in the door with Kima. Is that correct? That's fee grand. Yeah, the big system now, I believe, is 4700, the, the top-of-the-line model. Plus, you'll need an audio interface, so, you know, that puts you over the five grand mark. But um, Also, there's a learning curve. You can't just buy it and start making noises right away, right? It, exactly. I mean, you can. You can buy it and start making noises <laughs> right away, but um, it's like anything. It, it, it takes a bit of time to understand, and because it's so deep, if you really want to get the most out of it, you have to invest a lot of time. Yeah. I've been using this thing now, like I said, for probably six years now, and I only know, if I said I know 10% of it, I'd be giving myself too much credit. Um, it, it's incredibly, incredibly deep. So the community is pretty small, and they, they have these conventions. This is the fourth one, so every year. And basically just a bunch of people get together and nerd out about the system. But I've been to many conventions. I've done AES, and I've done NAM and I've done a ton of other ones. And those conventions are great, but you always end up having the same conversations there. A, they're mostly sales-oriented, so someone's always trying to get you to buy something. And B, even though people are maybe recording different things, everyone's recording, you know? And, and you always end up talking about, well, what EQ are you using? Or how are you miking that amp? Or it's, it's always the same type of, of circle. The unique thing about Kima, I find, is that it appeals to such a wide spectrum of people doing such an amazingly diverse set of things, but you all have this very common language. So you can talk about the device and how they're using it, but they're doing such amazing things. So you've got, you know, people working in theater, you've got people doing algorithmic composition, you've got people doing straight sound design for video games. You've got people creating monster sounds. You've got people creating beautiful orchestral pieces of music. You've got people doing research projects trying to synthesize the sound of insects, for instance, for academic purposes. It's all over the map. And now you're starting to see this incredible cross-discipline thing happening with Kima, thanks to OSC, the wonderful world of OSC, which for those that don't know, OSC is kind of a, a MIDI on steroids high resolution, very fast, and scriptable also. Um, mm -hmm. So it allows Kima to talk to basically anything else that speaks that same OSC language. So people are doing a lot of things with sound driving visuals. So sound driving light or vice versa, or both at the same time. And the conversations that I had were so incredibly inspiring. The performances I saw were just over the top and the community at large that was there was just some of the nicest, most genuine people I've ever had the pleasure of spending some time with. It was really, truly amazing. And the whole time there, I was just itching to get home so I could get back in front of mine to kind of try out some of the things that I was seeing there and hearing there. Oh, so you went, but you didn't bring your rig. I didn't bring my rig. It was, it was the first time I had been, and I didn't really know what to expect. Uh, like I said, I'd been to other conferences and I kind of expected it to be like those where you'd go and you'd 
walk around a bit and take a look at, you know, what other people were doing or what other people were, were working with. And then you'd go back to your hotel and you'd get dinner and go to sleep and do it again the next day. But uh, it wasn't like that at all. It was, you went to some talks that were, you know, kind of mind expanding. And then you'd have lunch with all of these people and you'd have conversations about everything under the sun. And then you'd go back for another session of that. And then you'd have a performance, which people would showcase all kinds of different things, whether it was some incredible improvisational piece or alternate controllers or, like I said, cross-discipline work. And then you'd go out for dinner and you'd be out until four in the morning. And then you'd do it again the next day, you know, because you, these people, it became like a little family. And at the end of the event, everyone was hugging each other and no one wanted to leave. And it was people exchanging phone numbers and, you know, call me when you land and let's collaborate. Let's talk. Let's make sure we stay in touch. Can't wait to see you next year kind of a thing. For a conference, it was truly amazing. That's great. Sounds like the end of a summer camp movie from the 80s. <laughs> it was. A actually, we said that to each other. We said, this feels like camp. It really feels like we were away at camp and now we're all just, we're all just bestest of friends. Right on. So what kind of stuff did you learn that you didn't really know going into it? I, well, I, I have the older system. So there's been, I think, a few iterations of the hardware side of things. The software's evolved as well, but at least as long as I've been using it, it has remained the same. I have the Capybara, which is a less powerful version of the DSP. It also has built-in I.O. And they upgraded, I think, two years ago to a system called the Pecorana, which is some exponential amount larger than that, more powerful than that. So I learned quite a bit about what you can do with that power versus what I can do with mine. I learned a lot about how you can use Kima to drive other devices, which is something I'm really into. I'm, I'm very, very into sound art and installation art. So I've, over the last couple of years, gotten really into the idea of using sound to drive visuals and using visuals to drive sound in real time. So there were a lot of people doing that. The, the nice thing about Kima is it's, it's really based around being a real-time system, which is kind of counter to a lot of things where you, you have to render out your patches. You know, Kima is meant to be, you can do very complex things, but you can control it all in real time. And that suits itself well to installation art. So there was a lot to be picked up from that, especially in terms of the performances. Some, some of the controllers people were using and how expressive they were being and the things they were being able to do on stage with one piece of gear. I mean, imagine being able to do an entire performance using one plugin. You know, that, that's the power of Keeman. Keeman's not a plugin, but everything was contained within that one box. The flexibility of it is amazing. So what kind of stuff do you find yourself really using Kima for the most? For me, I, I use it quite a bit for creating. I, I, at the beginning of a, of a project, I do a procedure that I've called, and I stole this from someone I worked with, called sandboxing. So I basically create just a bunch of sounds that I can then pull from, and I use it a lot for that. I have kind of a library of patches that I've built that I like what comes out of them. So creating little weird, interesting rhythms or creating background ambiences or creating some kind of just interesting sound effects that then I can then chop up and then use in the piece. I use that a lot, and there's some, thankfully, some good batch processing, some decent batch processing techniques that I have with that, so I can just kind of set that up and go to sleep and get up in the morning and have a whole bunch of sounds to, to play with. I also love, it's got some incredible spectral tools, so resynthesizing physical sounds or recorded sounds into something that you can then manipulate in real time. This was probably most notably done on Wally. That's how Ben Burt created those voices using Kima. So it's his voice and then manipulated using that system and played back and performed in real time. And I, I used that actually quite a bit. I actually used it just on this short film that should premiere in November. Used it as a voice effect? Yes, yes. Although it's not really an effect the way that I'm using it because I'm actually resynthesizing the voice. So it's a little bit more than that. I record the voice and then I read the amplitude and I read the frequency and some other bits and pieces of it. And then I create a synthesized version of that that then I can modify. In voice processing, as you know, is, is really quite difficult to do and not have it sound cheesy. Yep. Um, 
and Kimag, you can get very, very nuanced and very expressive. That's why all those little articulations in Wally are so well done because Ben Burt performed those in real time. That's a synthesized voice. It's not, uh, it's not a recorded object. The nice thing that you can do with Kima is you can, you can keep it from sounding like a synthesized voice. You know, if you have right. used the kind of like the typical text to speech thing, it, it's got that robotic stuff. And it, it, the, the thing about voice is those little tiny inflections and those little articulations that a human does. Yep. We haven't figured out how to do that with computers yet. But well, by and, using. And what I found is that when you take like a recorded human voice, there's only so many things you can do to it that don't sound cheesy and all of those things have been done before you always know what they are it's either you know a hard filter or it's a short delay or any of those types of things and you go beyond that and it starts really getting harder to uh to distinguish yourself you know yeah 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 i i absolutely agree voice processing is is to me like the last frontier of sound design no one's really figured it out how to do it really really well all the time but I, I enjoy working with voice and Kima uh, quite a bit. I, I think you can get some really interesting results without going to that cheesy kind of expected place. And I think the thing about voice processing is that the, it's all about the actor, right? If you're ever using a voice, if, if you can get a good recording and a good emotion, then a subtle processing is the best, I find. Yeah, for sure. You know, the, the more you push it, the more obvious it gets and then you're like oh yeah okay you're trying to do that voice effect thing i have um i have a voice effect that i do in one of the in one of the running cartoons that we do where i take it and i split it into three frequency bands specifically so that i can process the low end and the mid-range harder and more um more aggressively than the high end Mm -hmm. um so that it can still sound super clean and intelligible but i can still kind of do things like distortion and chorus but only to like a narrow kind of frequency band of the voice sure because if you try and do that to the whole voice it just it just turns into mush yep you're keeping it subtle yeah subtle is always good actually uh michael johnston from uh blizzard was at the convention Mm -hmm. and he did a little talk about how he used kima on some of their projects nice um so he he uses it a lot for for vocal processing and uh, definitely creating monsters. Kima has some wonderful algorithms for morphing one sound to another and mixing two sounds together using spectral techniques. And you can get some really interesting things. So taking a, he was taking recordings of a voice and crossing them with recordings of an avalanche to get a kind of this very interesting gravel type sound for a character who was based around the element of earth. Wow. So, yeah, you can do some really interesting stuff like that. You know, I can make someone sound like they're speaking through a bell sound, for instance. And that's just, that's kind of basic stuff you can do with that, but it, it gives you pretty convincing results. The algorithms are very, very well thought out and very, very well implemented. There's other plugins, you know, that do quote-unquote morphing, but I don't think they produce very... Uh, very believable results. I don't think the, the quality is all that good, but Kima, if you know what you're doing, you can get some really amazing things out of it. That's great. I mean, Kima is the, as I said, the only thing in my studio that I would never let you take from me. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else is negotiable, really, but uh, Kima is the one thing that that I find myself just just absolutely in love with day after day. That's how I feel about RX2. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. That thing's a, that thing's a lifesaver on a film. Lifesaver. Yep. Cool. Well, um, we're at about an hour, so we should wrap this thing up. Great. Let's talk about comments. This is episode number one, and so obviously we don't have any comments yet. If you'd like to uh, leave a comment, go to uh, tonebenders.net. Click on the uh, episode one, leave a comment in the comment section. We'll read it on the air in episode two, and we'll uh, discuss any kind of fun things that you guys have to say. Absolutely. And any comments about segments you'd like to see on the show or things we did that you don't like, things we didn't do that you do like, let us know, and we'll be, we'll be happy to accommodate. This is a, an experiment for all of us, a work in progress, so to speak. 
Go ahead, Tim. I see you. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to make a joke, but... Oh, come on. Make, make it. it make the joke. <laughs> I was going to make a comment about how when you're leaving comments, uh, make sure you stand uh, up to what we said earlier about how sound people aren't assholes. Right. Sound people are not assholes. <laughs> well, not all. This is the first episode. I think in the future, uh, we're going to try and be a little more structured. We're just kind of free-flowing and letting you get to know us in this episode. Uh, but we're looking forward to seeing how this thing evolves, and uh, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, we've already got some um, some segments that are starting to be produced. We're going to have some really cool stuff that's coming with regards to processing, shootouts, field recording, that type of stuff. We're going to be coming with a lot of cool things. So anything that, that you guys feel like you want to hear, that you feel like would be a good idea for a segment, just leave a comment and we'll, um, we'll get on it. And uh, feel free to follow us on Twitter at The Tone Benders. And uh, we'll make sure that you know when all the future episodes are up and uh, any other news regarding this podcast. Also, our regular Twitters, I am at R-E-N-E underscore Coronado. Dustin is at Pulse Train, is that correct? That is correct. And Tim is at Azimuth Audio. Correct. Follow us on Twitter. We like to talk a lot, and we're not assholes all the time. Only occasionally. Only occasionally, exactly. (laughs) Okay, great. It was... uh, Great doing this first episode with you guys. It's been a pleasure. Bye now. Thanks for listening to Turnbenders. Find us online at turnbenders.net where you can see our archives and leave a comment or a tip. If you listen on iTunes, please write us a review while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at the Turnbenders or email us at dc, timothy, or renee at turnbenders.net. 